ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald and we have a very special show today about one of the topics that is the closest to my heart, which is innovation. And the book is called Rethink Innovation, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. Our guest today is Carla Johnson. Carla, welcome. Hi, Chickie. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me a part of your show. Well, I'm so excited because, well, number one, your foreword was written by Brian Solis, and he has been on the show several times. And I just, I love the way he thinks uh, his book, Life Scale, which was the last one I, I think we interviewed him on, uh, just was an amazing book with an amazing layout. So uh, the fact that you've got his endorsement is a really, really strong statement. So Carla, before we dive into the book, uh, I would love for you to share with our listeners uh, a little bit about you, uh, your backstory, you know, why this book, why now? I would love to, you know, um, as I think back on what's been that one consistent thread throughout all of the work that I've done, the one word that comes to mind is story. And as you know, as an innovator yourself, story is such a tremendously important part of innovation and, and they're intricately linked. And I I think my roots in story came because I came from a, a community that was full of storytellers. I grew up in a very small town with a lot of Western European immigrants who got together and told stories about the old country. And they were always fascinating to me. My mother was a teacher and a history buff. And again, just filled with stories. When I grew up and went to university, I actually started out in engineering ended up with a master's in history, which I think are two things that are about just as far apart as they can get. But that blend of technical know-how and storytelling has really been the foundation of what has been my work since then. <clears throat> a lot of it based on story about organizations. I wrote the first corporate history ever for Western Union. I've written a corporate history oh, for wow. the Army Corps of Engineers, which also had never had a had a story written and the ability to um, start out and think, what's the emotion we want to evoke with this story? And then how do we reverse engineer what we create in order to deliver that emotion was something that I learned in working with designers, architecture designers. Because when they start on a project, one of the things they do is they say, what, how do we want people to feel when they go in this space? And so it's that combination of, of uh, emotion and empathy and story. And, you know, the technical structure led me down um, storytelling for businesses, creating story-driven content, content experiences. And then people saying, this all sounds great, but the one thing I struggle with is how do I actually come up with a great idea? And that's been my quest these last five years is to dig into that question right there and to rethink innovation, that it's not something just focused on the products and services that we sell, but it's something that everybody in every situation in every company of every size 
has the capacity to do. And I think especially now, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in the last year, Chicky, is that the companies and the people who are able to identify opportunities and be innovative are the ones who've really been able to not just survive what we've been going through, but actually truly thrive. Right, right. Well, and again, I love the tagline of your book about delivering extraordinary outcomes because, you know, when things are good, when the economy is good, when consumer confidence is high, uh, we get complacent. And I, as I shared with you before we got on the air, I have been a part of the global travel industry and more specifically travel technology and the distribution of marrying buyers and sellers, right? And I, I actually have been in the industry since 1978. So I have been blessed to watch the evolution of, of innovation. And of course, there you know, were major milestones along that way, the internet being you know, probably the most important. But the interesting thing was that most of what happened when we took travel online is we just automated what had been done offline. <laughs> which wasn't innovative at all. It was simply a different delivery mechanism, which of course brought it closer to the consumer, but it was still just as inefficient, right? You're right. And, and that's a good point because there's, there's a difference between doing something differently and doing something innovatively. Yes. And I think that was the perfect example. Well, exactly. And, you know, the example that I always give, uh, because in my current tech company, uh, we have a product that's all about uh, planning travel to the place that you're actually going. Now, you might say, and I know you have, have been a traveler for, you know, many, many years, you might say, well, Chicky, that's how it is done. Well, no, it's not, Carla. If you wanted to come uh, visit me from Denver to Tampa, where I live, you wouldn't just need a hotel room in Tampa. It's 174 square miles. And I used to live in Denver and I know how very spread out Denver is. And, you know, if I pick a particular hotel, it might be, you know, an hour uh, to get to where you are, right? If I, if I choose improperly, Right. So the, this whole notion of proximity and, and where you actually need to be at what time you need to be there is something that it amazes me that my industry never thought about. Uh, so let's let's dive into the book and let's talk about how you rethink innovation, because, you know, most of us think about innovation being technology oriented. But I know from my own consulting practice that business models need to be innovative, just the way organizations operate need to be innovated. So why don't you tell us what, what inspired you to write the book, who the ideal audience is, and then let's just dive into the topic of what is innovation. Absolutely. You know, I think um, there's a couple things that inspired me. One was after Robert Rose and I wrote a book in 2015 called Experiences, the Seventh Era of Marketing about creating story-driven experiences. People loved, loved the process and, and the idea, but the consistent feedback that I heard from people was, this is great, but I still struggle with coming up with the creative ideas that I can put into this process and, and have it come out. And so the one question I sought to answer is, is this ability 
to connect the dots from something you experience into the work that you do, a process that can be deconstructed, you know, put into a process, something that people can see, learn and teach and repeatedly use and implement. And the answer is absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of the famous quotes on innovation, you know, one of the best is Steve Jobs and it's all about connecting the dots, which sounds incredibly simple until you aren't what you, you know, what you may imagine a natural innovator. And you're like, well, how do I actually connect those dots to start to deliver some of these amazing ideas? Like Steve Jobs said, you know, it's not really that hard. You just connect the dots. And that's what this book does is teaches people how exactly you connect those dots to come up with these extraordinary ideas. And when I look at the audience, my audience, my um, main audience for my own business is vice presidents and above at um, companies that range from 50 million to maybe 20 billion. And it's companies who are looking to perform better, to not just continue to um, do what they've been doing and, and try and tweak it, but to really start to look at how do we do business? How do we put the customer at the center of what we do? And how do we rethink how we approach all of this rather than just continually driving for incremental efficiencies or incremental right. improvements? Yeah, you that's know, exhausting, right? It, it, exactly. And, and you can never innovate your way into another tier of business success with incremental improvements. And so that's why that's why I called it Rethink Innovation is that we have to rethink what it actually is. And it isn't just the product and services that we sell. It's our entire approach to how we do business. And I see companies that have a traditional innovation group that has people tasked with innovation. And if you if you talk to the other people in these companies and you say, you know, let's look for a, a new idea, how to do, you know, maybe how to create a better customer experience, you know, how to do some of these things. They say, well, that's not my job because they're the innovation group. And so they pass that buck onto this group that could never handle all of these challenges that a company needs to be able to tackle. Or they say, I'm not smart enough because I'm, you know, I'm not an innovator. It's not on my title. I'm not a design thinker. I'm not a data analyst or, you know, whatever that may be. And so you end up having this island of people that even if they're amazingly prolific with innovation, they still have to get all of those those ideas through the rest of the company. And if they don't understand the concept of innovation as a mindset, rather than just an activity, you will always struggle. It doesn't matter how great your product is. And so I wanted people to be able to start taking ownership and self-identify as innovators and innovative thinkers. And in fact, that's one of my goals is to teach a million people how to become innovative thinkers by 2025, because I believe that is the superpower that every company has the ability to take advantage of and truly experience the growth, the employee engagement, the customer engagement, the loyalty, the trust that, we, that every company has the opportunity to experience, but doesn't truly understand how to take advantage of. Right. Well, the amazing thing is, Carla, and, you know, I, I am a person of deep faith and, and I know that we were created in God's image and he is the creator, right? I mean, creativity is the very essence 
of how we were created. And, you know, everybody's bag was packed with, you know, some very, very specific talents, but that's one of the fundamentals, right? And so, you know, I've had this same conversation with people about leadership, right? Is everybody a, a born leader? Can you become a leader? But innovation is different because we were all created in God's image to create. And again, I love the fact that you want to weave this in culturally because it is a cultural mindset, right? And if, if the leaders of the company allow people to discover that rather than stovepiping it over, the sky's the limit. It's true. And, and it's not even just a matter of leaders letting employees discover it, but it's actually rediscover it. There's a study that I talk about in one of the chapters that um, uh, George Land was a systems engineer in, in the late 1960s, and he started a consultancy to teach people how to be more creative and innovative in the work that they did. So he, he had that background in very left brain, data-driven kind of things. And NASA came to him and said, we really need to be able to identify the engineers in our group who are the most <clears throat> creative and innovative thinkers because we have these special projects and we need those kind of thinkers to help us propel NASA to the level that we need to have it be in order to accomplish these things. And so George was able to come up with an assessment that identified these engineers and, and helped NASA. Now, after the project was done, he was you know, talking to himself over coffee one day and he said, you know, like what happened? How can an organization like NASA, one of the most innovative, you know, definitely in the 60s at the time with the things that they were planning and doing and launching and the people they could attract, like how, how are creative and innovative people so hard to identify? Like, where did that happen? And so he took his assessment and adjusted it for kids. And he he studied 1,600 kids, started when they were five years old. And the interesting thing, Chicky, is that at five, 98% of those 1,600 kids measured at the genius level of creativity. And so wow. when you talk about it's, it's natural and innate and, and we were created in the image of our creator, you are absolutely right. Now, move ahead five years until these kids are 10 and that number of those that are measuring at the genius level has dropped to 30%. And now wow. at 15 years old, it drops to 12. Well, you know what's happened between five and 15 is a lot of educational system. And kids are said, are told, you know, put those things aside. You know, that's silly. That's ridiculous. You need to start stepping up. You know, you need to conform essentially. And then you move from 15 to, you know, your 30s and you're in your career and you've gone through university and, and now you're in that working culture and only 2% of people measured that creative genius level. So when I talk about, it's not just learning how to do it. It's learning how to go back to who we truly were when we were young and what actually came natural to us. And I think that I there's, love that. yeah, there's, there's so much heart and soul in all of that because I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen it too, too many people who spend careers at, at their desk and they show up when they're 20 and they're excited and they can't wait to go. And then, you know, they have a lot of ideas by the time they're 30, they're like, all right, well, let me bring in a little reality. And then by the time they're 40, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's drudgery and they're just counting the days so they can retire and they want to be, you know, they want to make sure they get the mortgage paid and the kids through college and, 
And it really has taken the heart and soul out of them. And, and I believe one of the key things that we need to do to help people not feel like that's the destiny of their life is to bring out that natural innovative thinker and teach people how to bring that trueness, that five-year-old forward in a way that is truly functional in the companies that we have, the corporate environments, it doesn't matter what size, but right. you, you don't have to choose one or the other. Actually bringing that forward is the best for not only employees, but also the companies themselves, the shareholders, the stakeholders, you know, everybody who has a financial interest in the, in the company. Right, right. Now you introduce a concept uh, called brand detachment disorder. And, you know, I, I think I've lived this, but I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear how, how this emerged as, and actually this fits in the section of the book where you talk about why we don't innovate, right? And we've talked a bit about that. So how do we, how do we get rid of that? Well, first of all, what is it? And then how do we, how do we disarm that? Absolutely. And, and brand detachment disorder is a term that I coined to describe, I think, all of our tendencies to look at a brand who does amazingly creative things or even a person or an experience that we've had and to say, oh, I, I could never do that myself because, you know, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I don't work for that kind of company. We don't have that kind of budget. We don't have those kind of products. I don't have that kind of boss, you know, and here come the laundry list of excuses. And we brand attachment disorder is this, this natural tendency that we have to dismiss the brilliance of a great idea, experience, whatever it may be, because we think that what we sell or do is different or unique and it just doesn't apply. But that ability to look at something that truly inspires us and excites us and to be able to deconstruct it and understand the characteristics, the essence behind what makes it successful is what I call the cure to brand detachment disorder. And that's a brand transplant. And that's actually being able to understand those characteristics and, and move those into our own world. And, and I'm sure you've seen this, Chicky, in, in innovation is when people will try to essentially copy and paste something that's been successful elsewhere. I mean, one of the, the things I think about is the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge and how other, nine, other nonprofits try to capture the viral aspect of it. Well, it didn't go viral because they said, let's make it viral. The reason it was such an extraordinary outcome is because they were able to create an experience that was shareable, that was different, that was challenging, but not too out there. Anybody of any age, of any economic status, social status could do it and share it. And that's, that starts to show how you can make things successful. And, mm -hmm. and if people say, well, I could never do that because I'm not ALS and, and I have shareholders. Well, you know, let's, let's look at what made it successful. Right. And that's a big part of brand detachment disorder. And, and I catch myself doing it too, saying, oh, I could never do that because and here come the laundry list. Well, it's it's funny that you choose that particular one because uh, first of all, I I absolutely remember the day when my kids came home from school and they had heard about it, and of course they wanted to do it. Now they had no intention of actually donating to ALS. They, <laughs> they didn't even know what it was. 
Uh, but I remember them out on the driveway, you know, doing it with each other and, and recording it on their phones. But I can tell you when my company began reaching out to nonprofits and, you know, again, we have this travel product where no matter where you go and what you do, uh, you can utilize this tool and donate 25% of, of the gross revenue that we have from that trip to your charity of choice. And I actually created a campaign saying how much more fun this was to post your uh, trip pictures than pouring a bucket of ice over your head. Right. And so trying to communicate with them how easy it would be to get their supporters to show a picture, even if they're sitting with grandma. Right. Or going uh, to the Taj Mahal or whatever they're doing and saying in this trip, I helped ALS. Right. Or whoever the charity is. Right. So I, I think it's, it's really interesting if we can actually take something like that that we think we can't do and actually try to figure out how we leverage that. So I want to talk about this perpetual innovation process because I am a perpetual innovator. So this is actually my MO, right? This is how, <laughs> how I operate. But one of the things I have found is my team uh, typically are on the other end of the spectrum. And when I talk about innovation, they're all afraid I mean tomorrow, right? And usually I'm talking about a much longer horizon. Um, so I would love to hear, you know, you talk a lot about the steps uh, and this book, for those who are listening to this interview, uh, the book is incredibly practical and, and lays out not only step by step, but also gives stories about different, uh, you know, situations that you have encountered. And we're not going to have time for all of them or even as many of them as I would like to, but I'd love for you to just choose uh, one or two that you would like to share about this perpetual innovation process. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll go through the steps real briefly and then share one of the stories to show how it works so well to deliver those extraordinary outcomes. So the first step is actually observe. And that's, it was interesting in my research that that was one of the key characteristics of people who are perpetually innovative. And when I say perpetually innovative, it means over a long period of time, like decades, their entire career versus somebody who I call a one hit wonder. You know, they had one great idea, but that was as good as they ever got. You know, or those that I call steady eddies where they do something a little different, but not quite enough to really be considered innovative. And so these truly prolific innovators are highly observant of the world around them. Mm -hmm. The next thing that they're able to do is to take what they've observed and start to recognize patterns to distill what they've seen into these patterns. And then they begin to relate those patterns into the work that they do. And it's then and only then that they start to generate new ideas and then pitch them. And what happens traditionally is that when we need a new idea for anything, what do we do? We say, let's get together, let's brainstorm, let's go into a room and let's just throw out ideas because you know there's no such thing as a bad idea, but unless you have context or some infusion of inspiration, every idea is really just a rehash of some idea that's already been done. And then you pitch it and there's no context for it. And so your boss, your client, your whoever says, no, that's ridiculous. It triggers brand detachment disorder. And they're saying, we're not that kind of company. We don't have that kind of budget. We don't sell that kind of product. And so it disheartens people. You know, right. that's why you have only 2% of those adults who are at that creative genius because they've been trained to not think that way. 
And so as, as an example, I have a, a good friend who I talk about in the book. His name is Tim Washer, and Tim is a professional stand-up comedian. He's also been a writer for comedians such as Amy Poehler on Saturday Night Weekend Update, Conan O'Brien, Stephen Colbert, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, the, the names in comedy. And along the lines, he thought, well, maybe he would like to have a career that's a little bit more predictable than a stand-up comedian. And he went to work for IBM and then after that, Cisco. And at Cisco one year, they were launching a new product at Valentine's Day. And he said, you know, I, I got to think of something different because nobody's ever going to spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars on a metal box of wires because of a talking head. And he happened to be at a comedy club one night and he was watching the crowd's response to Ray Romano, who was on the stage and all the details of how he was able to quickly and intimately build a relationship with this audience of complete strangers who were just so connected to everything that he said. So in that moment, he was practicing the first step and that's observation. Then he began to think, why was Ray Romano so successful? And he said, one, he got him to laugh. So this is where he started to distill. He got him to laugh. He talked about things that were relevant to them. He made a very quick emotional connection. So those are the things, the patterns that he began to distill. Now he said, okay, for this product lunch, what if I can build an immediate intimate connection through humor that gets people to trust us in the work that we do? So that's how he related it into the work that he did. And then he started to generate ideas and pitch them. Well, the idea that came out was a hilarious 60 second video that talks about the three ways that you say, I love you at Valentine's day. You know, you can give, give your um, girlfriend flowers or diamonds or carve your initials into a heart on a tree. Well, now the fourth opportunity is a Cisco ASR 9,000 router. And so it was just, <laughs> it was just the ridiculousness of it, but right. it got people to laugh and he paralleled it with love and, you know, all of the stereotypical romantic Valentine's things. And the interesting thing when it came to his extraordinary outcomes is that he said, if we ever said we want to make sure we get, you know, front page media attention and analysts and, and all of this, he said, we never would have made it. But what we did is we just said, we're going to look at something to create this Im immediate intimate connection. And it was the humanness of it that got people right. to pay attention. And it was the media and the analysts that said, this is hilarious. Like, who does this? You know, who, who talks about romance in the terms of an ASR 9000 router? And they were telling their audience, which is Cisco's key buyers, to go look at the company. And now sales teams also went nuts over it because they would sit down with customers and prospects and they would play this video and everyone in the room couldn't help but just break out laughing. And so their meetings started with more intimacy because of laughter and right. their emotional walls were down. And so they were more willing to have honest, transparent conversations rather than keeping those Cisco salespeople at arm's length. Wow, I love that. So you, you then talk about uh, becoming an idea factory, right? And, and then creating an idea journey, which I love that concept uh, because you're right. I mean, it, it isn't just having a great idea. It's being able to, to pitch it to others and, and to get them to get excited about it. And, you know, and being able to take feedback, which uh, I, I know as, as a perpetual inventor, uh, sometimes that's hard because I, when I get an idea, I get an idea that's fully baked, right? I mean, it's delivered to me and I can see everything end to end. 
uh, about it. So I see problem and solution really in the same frame. And, and I realize again, my team didn't always see things that way. So there is another part of this, which is the practice of actually rolling innovation out. So talk to us about the steps there. And uh, again, I, I would love it if you would share another story. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one thing to be equipped with a how-to, know, know what to do tool, like the perpetual innovation process. But it's another thing to take that step to begin to implement it and integrate it into your everyday work to become that perpetual innovator. Because one of the, the things that I see that people struggle with is that they say, well, I get it now, but you know, what do I do about all these gay who's around me who are still clueless? Right. And, and I start out that, that part about the practice about, you know, addressing the fact, how do you create a culture of innovative thinkers? It's not about teaching one person a process and expecting the world to change. If we as executives and leaders truly expect our company to consistently experience growth and to be able to have this powerhouse of all employees identifying opportunities to be able to solve problems or, you know, counteract them before they become a problem, then we have to teach them to think differently, to become original thinkers. And in a lot of companies, thinking originally is something that's seen as a threat. But if we can start to put it into context that it's not about um, bucking management, uh, a house full of chaos and you know cats all running around in a different direction, but it, it's teaching people a methodical process in, in a way to think. So then if we look at the practice, if you want to create an innovative organization, you have to reverse engineer it into the individual people. And that's where we need to start with, with creating those kind of companies is, is look at how do we create innovation at the individual level? And one of the things that I share is an assessment that I came up with after the research about the six different kind of archetypes of people who come up with ideas. Like you are very much an orchestrator. You have an idea, you, you naturally understand all the stepping stones, parts and pieces and the political arena that has to go along with it. I'm a provocateur. I am always, always pushing the status quo. Like I, I'm never satisfied. And there's, there's four other archetypes. And, and what we have to understand is we all need to work together. There is no right or wrong way, but the only way that you can be the best orchestrator you can be, or I can be the best provocateur I can be, is to understand where I'm strong, where I'm weak, and then how to integrate with everybody else. So we all get along in this ecosystem because I know even as, as teams, we are tired of hearing, you've, you've just got to do more with less. And the lesson isn't to do more with less, but it's to bring out more of what you already have. And that comes from your people and their own natural ability to, to be curious and to find these opportunities and solve the problems. So that's how you go from individuals into team innovation. And then from team innovation, you know, an, an entire organization's company's performance is right. based on the performance of teams and, and it all bubbles up. And that's why we have to look at then as, as executives and leaders, how do we create the environment, the ecosystem, so that these teams and individuals can be successful on our behalf so that we as a company can consistently deliver those extraordinary outcomes without burning everybody out. Right, right. Well, as an early stage entrepreneur, I would be really interested to see how this translates into 
um, how do investors think about this, right? And how do you figure out which one of those categories the investors fall into so that you're properly appealing to them? Because right now in my particular situation, we essentially had to put our company on hold for a year uh, because of, of the pandemic. Uh, we rely on a healthy travel and events marketplace of people needing and wanting to be face to face. And so now I'm at a situation where I don't have a team anymore, right? I have to build a whole new team and I don't have a, a big corporation around me. Although one of the things that we could do is find an investor who has a portfolio of companies who are interested in innovation and they need an idea factory, right? And so plugging, you know, me and my uh, tool sets in would create that idea factory right out of the gate, right? So uh, have you ever been asked that question uh, about I, I, I haven't been asked that question outright, but when I wrote the part about the innovation at the corporate level, what I saw tends to happen with, with startups and smaller companies is that they're started by the orchestrators and the provocateurs, the people who can, you know, have that visionary um, view of the world and to con continue to push that status quo with, you know, what they deliver or how they deliver it. And then the orchestrators who are able to see the landscape and, and navigate everything. And then as these companies begin to grow, you know, HR comes into play because they need to hire more people. And I think HR to be, um, in order for them to be consistent and um, look at how do we bring stability into a previously perhaps volatile startup environment is that they start to bring in, you know, definitely more strategists, you know, let's make sure we have the plan down. We know the plan, we have it down. You know, some of the psychologists, the culture shapers and the rest of the archetypes. And it begins to, dampen all of that passion and enthusiasm and the ability to orchestrate at the environmental level. And a lot of that innovative thinking and dynamics just gets burned out, you know, just gets pushed to the side over time for the sake of stability. But the, the thing is, isn't that we want to replace these big, bold ideas and the push to do bigger things that orchestrators are great at with stability, the thing we have to look at is how do we build the ecosystem that respects, trusts, and appreciates both sides of this. And that's when I look at the, um, the balance of what all of these archetypes are. It's almost as if the one that people say, and especially startup leaders and, and entrepreneurs who see themselves as these orchestrators, you know, the the people like you who, you know, have this vision and exactly know how to do it, you're right. One of their biggest failures is they they don't get why the rest of the team can't see it. Right. And they feel like, you know, they feel like they're chained to this ball that's, you know, holding them back and they can't move fast enough. And so the important thing is that you do need the level of stability. And I mean, especially if you have investors, definitely you can't be just um, all, all over the place, but you have to learn to balance that with the energy and passion that comes with the archetype tendencies of the people who start these companies, because mm -hmm. otherwise you just, you, you start to level out and nothing feels innovative anymore. And then you lose a lot of those early stage, powerful, powerful thinkers yes. because they're bored. 
They're bored yes. or burnt out. Yeah, well, burned out uh, is is definitely a challenge. So let's talk about getting to extraordinary outcomes because that's really the the conclusion of this whole process is, so now you've figured out how to rethink innovation. You've got a process in place, you know the kinds of people and how they should interact with one another. And you've given them the steps to succeed. So what differentiates the company that gets to extraordinary outcomes after they have followed this roadmap and those that don't? Well, I think that the one thing that is most con- uh, most prominent is that they consistently deliver these outcomes. And m- in all of my research, these extraordinary outcomes were never anything any of the idea generators could ever predict. Tim Washer could mm-hmm. never predict that his um, little funny Valentine's Day campaign would hit the front of you know major news media, that the analysts would be all over it and things like that. Um, I talk about one guy who's a luxury real estate realtor in, in LA, and he took his background in special effects and film because that was his passion when he moved from Toronto, Canada to LA. Um, he just picked up real estate on the side because he wanted to make some extra money. And then he took what he learned from film and applied it to real estate. He's so successful that now when word gets out that he is the selling agent for a property in a neighborhood, every house in that neighborhood, the, the market value goes up Wow! Beca- because he's so well known for, for what he does and, and what, what are called um, property docu, you know, docu dramas for for his properties, which are, you know, he makes these movies, tells these stories that happen to take place in these, you know, 14, 15, 18, 50 million dollar homes in Bel Air, right. the hills, and and, you know, he's he's understood how to take what he's observed in movies and distill that into what works and relate that into real estate. And deliver these extraordinary outcomes. So it's that's an important part to to take note of is that you cannot necessarily seek out the extraordinary outcome as your objective. And one of the things that I didn't mention about the process is that before you start at all, I'm very specific about the objective you set for the project, how you set it, and why, because that does make a difference on the outcome. Um, for the kind of ideas that you start to implement and, and even test along the way. And that has a key part in what you pitch because bad pitches can kill even the best of ideas. And as you mentioned, you know, the feedback part, and those are all incremental parts that lead to the likelihood of delivering a truly extraordinary idea. Now, extraordinary is subjective and relative. One of the companies, one of the companies I profile is Park Mobile, and they're a technology firm that helps people find parking, parking, among other things that they're venturing into. And they hold an innovation week every six months. And their chief marketing and product officer, Jeff Perkins, talks about during one of their innovation weeks, a woman from finance taught herself a programming language so she could take 20 minutes to do, to run a report that was automated versus it took her 40 man hours, you know, 40 manual hours to get it done. Now, does that feel extraordinary? You know, probably not on the scale of becoming a sought after Hollywood real, you know, realtor. However, if you look at the amount of time that she saves every single month, 
you, you know, multiply that times 12 months and you think about the emotional aspect that you just took off 39 hours and 40 minutes of drudgery, you know, just work that brings no joy and frees her up to do work that is more valuable to the company. That's an extraordinary outcome. And now you think that's just one employee. What if you could scale that across all employees in the organization? Because one of the, one of the research statistics that I found that I think is particularly interesting is that 90% of innovation happens outside of product and service innovation. Yet 75% of a company's investment is typically in innovation toward a product. Well, what if we flip that around and invested 75% and then 90% that has the highest rate of return? You know, there's, that's why I talk about extraordinary outcomes. Hmm. Well, I absolutely love it. And I could talk all day about this topic, but we've already gone longer than I had promised you. So uh, Carla, I would love to hear uh, how you would like for people to connect with you. I, my website is Carla with a C Johnson.co. There's no M just CO. And when you go there, you'll see ways to connect with me on my social channels. I always love it when people reach out on LinkedIn, um, you can sign up for my newsletter and there's lots of other free resources and information about where and how you can buy my book, Rethink Innovation. Very cool. Well, we have been talking to Carla Johnson today, the author of Rethink Innovation, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. And again, the book is highly practical. Uh, this is something that you can sit down with a pen and, and your notepad and really help change the way that your company is structured and, and really integrate in innovation into your culture, which I think is, is really the ultimate extraordinary outcome. Carla, thank you so much for your time. It has just been delightful. Oh, thank you, Chicky. It has been just such a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Like what you just heard? Visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business.